but I actually um, brought it as a, a visual aid. I thought I would begin a little bit tonight by just saying a few words about listening to the talk as practice. So as we've been um, speaking about here, um, you know, everything is in the service of awareness. So I forget what it's listed on the schedule, but it should say awareness while listening to the talk or something like that. So the, the point in these talks is, well, it's multifold, but it's a little different, different from our Western model of like if we're in school, you know, maybe in high school or in college, listening to a lecture, and the point is to um, gather a lot of information, as much information as we can, and to show that we're being attentive by really giving, you know, the speaker our full attention. And there's a very particular model, educational model, that most of us have come out of. Um, and that's not the format that we're operating within here. So the purpose of these talks is really to continue to support your awareness practice, just like everything else. So if you go to, uh, as maybe some of you have, uh, practice in Asia or at Asian centers, and uh, there's a monastic giving a talk, everybody's meditating. You look around the room, everybody, everybody's sitting in their medita- meditation posture, eyes closed, paying attention to, to the body, the posture of the body, not squirming around, um, and continuing to meditate, basically, as they listen to the talk. In, in the interest of supporting awareness. So as, as we've all learned, and Steve has been talking about some, for example, with seeing, you know, looking up here, taking in this fascinating <laughs> scene up here, uh, <laughs> a lot of energy, a lot of attention can go out through the eyes. And as we're listening to the talk, we can really leave our bodies. So it's worth paying attention a little bit to keeping the awareness grounded in the body even if we're not sitting in formal meditation posture, you know, that's not necessary. But just continuing to rest some amount of the awareness in the body as we listen. And you may also experiment with closing the eyes. So again, in a more traditional context, like staring at the speaker, (laughs) staring at at whoever's giving the Dharma talk, is actually considered disrespectful. (laughs) It's actually considered to be a sign that you're not really attending to your experience. And uh, the monks have these... um, these big fans you may have seen that actually function as something of a man purse. So they're, they're like, they have a zippered pouch in them and they can put their talk notes and whatever else they need to carry in there. But if they see, um, you know, people out in the, the audience paying too much attention to them with the eyes as they're speaking, then the fan starts to come up. <laughs> to, to, to kind of convey the message that, you know, it's not about, you know, enjoying the spectacle of... <laughs> <laughs> me sitting up here talking. It's in the service of awareness. So th- th- all of that is just, um, you know, by way of, of giving you permission to approach the time in the talk here in whatever way helps to support your practice. And I won't be offended <laughs> if I look out and see your eyes closed. Um, it's perf- and in fact, it will give me great joy. And there's not really, you know, so much to see up here anyway. <laughs> so... <laughs> experiment with it and see how it's most useful to use this time. So there may be times when we're feeling really settled in practice, there's a lot of momentum, and we don't really need a whole lot from the talk to keep us going. So what's going to be most supportive is just to really stay in the body, stay in our experience, maybe take in a few things here and there from the talk that might be helpful. Or at other times, if our energy really is flagging, you know, if we're just feeling physically tired or mentally, emotionally burned out, then we can use the talk as a chance to to draw some inspiration. So then we might want to look more, even we might want to engage more out of discernment as a way of drawing inspiration, boosting our faith and our energy. If there's times when we come into the talk and we know we're already kind of amped up, we've had kind of a restless period, the mind is already kind of racing, then again, we may really want to pay attention to keeping the body still, really keeping the attention settled in the body so that the talk doesn't stir us up even more. So it's just to stay sensitive to your experience, even while listening to the talk. So that's about that. Uh, I wanted to start off the talk tonight with this quote from Chogam Trungpa Rinpoche, the late uh, Tibetan master. This is um, a quote he was said to have uh, addressed to a group of students that he was speaking with. He said, my advice to you is not to undertake the spiritual path. It's too difficult, too long, and too demanding. I suggest you ask for your money back and go home. (laughs) This is not a picnic. Uh, 
It's really going to ask everything of you, so it's best not to begin. However, if you do begin, it's best to finish. (laughs) So the first days of a retreat are, uh, as we all know, usually very much about connecting with difficult and unpleasant experiences in the body and in the mind, about coming face to face with the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, and all of their varied and uh, exciting manifestations, and seeing all of the suffering that they cause us. Um, if, we're, if we're not getting this, is anybody not getting this? <laughs> if we're not getting this, as we've said before, chances are that we're not practicing very effectively. We're not practicing very sincerely. And this is an important part of what we learn about here, of what we have to learn about here. By necessity, there's this process of observing all those defilements of mind. That's a lot of what comes up in our minds when we start to get still, when we start to get quiet. But it is important to remember that that's not the only thing that's happening here. There's also a whole set of beautiful qualities of mind, qualities that do lead towards greater peace, towards greater happiness, towards less suffering, a whole set of wholesome mental states that also can and do arise in the mind when the conditions are right. So one way, another way, of looking at what we're doing here is cultivating favorable conditions for these beautiful qualities of mind to emerge out of that uh, morass of the defilements, out of the, the muck of the defilements. If all we were doing here was just sitting day after day engulfed in suffering, that really wouldn't be too productive. <laughs> you know, we could do that at home. We don't have to come here to do that. So there's more going on here than just the defilements and the suffering that comes from them, although it's not always obvious. But it really is just as important to recognize the beautiful qualities that we are cultivating as we're here. The lotus as most of us probably know, is a classical symbol in Buddhism, precisely because it's a flower that um, grows up out of the muck. If you've ever seen a lotus growing, you know, they grow up out of, out of a muddy water. Um, or here, if, if you're around during the fall for the three-month retreat, um, the, the corn harvesting and uh, uh, planting is a good uh, metaphor for this also. So once the corn has all been harvested, then the manure trucks come around. <laughs> It's, it's a wonderful experience when you're on the three-month retreat. Uh, there's, you know, if you walk down Pleasant Street, it's kind of like splattered with, you know, what, what's being carried to the fields, uh, and you get to experience that. And that's what's needed to produce the next crop. The fields have to be prepped. You know, they have to be fertilized, and that's where the next crop comes from, comes out of. The Buddha called the beautiful qualities that help us in our growth, the factors of awakening, or the factors of enlightenment, which can sound a little uh, kind of hoity-toity, the factors of enlightenment, can sound a little pie in the sky, Uh, just as the the kind of the terms that we translate kalesas as as defilements or torments. Um, A lot of these traditional translations for these terms can sound a bit biblical. Um, So we have to remember that many of those translations, they came from the Victorians, (laughs) They have a particular slant on them. But in a way, too, those, those kind of um, grandiose terms that we use for these qualities of mind, we come to see that in a way they're quite appropriate because these forces are very powerful in our lives, very powerful in our minds. They really shape our lives, push and pull us this way and that. Traditionally, there are said to be seven factors of awakening. So first and foremost is mindfulness, sati, then investigation of dhammas, dhamma vichaya, dhamma investigation. There's energy, virya, joy, piti, calm, pasadi, concentration, samadhi, and finally equanimity, upekka. That's the traditional list of awakening factors. So what's important about all of these, as, as with everything, is to really come to understand for ourselves what these qualities are from our own experience, not just simply to know the names, but to to come more and more to realize the actual experiences that they point to. These awakening factors, these beautiful states of mind, they're delightful in and of themselves. 
And they're also onward leading. They're helping us to move towards the development of wisdom. So we don't want to be daunted by that term, uh, enlightenment factors, factors of awakening. We don't want to feel like that's just because that name may be a little off-putting, <laughs> that these are qualities that are beyond our reach, that we can't achieve. They're actually very ordinary, very normal um, states of mind that we all experience, we all do experience. The Buddha said that just as in a peaked house, all of the rafters slope toward the peak, incline toward the peak, and join at the peak. Even so, a yogi who cultivates and honors the seven factors of awakening slopes towards freedom, inclines towards freedom, tends towards freedom. So the Buddha is saying here that if we cultivate these qualities, then they put us on uh, the slippery slope to liberation. Again, kind of like that quote from Sayada Upandita, whether we like it or not, this is the direction in which they tend. This is the direction in which they lean. Uh, it's not always the slippery slope that we feel like we're on here, the slope towards liberation. But again, this is actually what's happening, whether we believe it or not. Um, though it's often out of our view. We've been speaking throughout the retreat about the lawfulness of the arising of mental states, that they don't come for just no reason. They don't come at random. It's not arbitrary. They come for causes and conditions. And we see this with uh, the hindrances, with the difficult states of mind. And it's the same with the factors of awakening. They arise due to causes and conditions, just like everything else. We see in the world all around us, in the natural world, how things happen due to causes and conditions, and we just take it for granted. So every animal, every plant has evolved to fill its particular niche in the world. So back in the, in the pine grove under here, just as a very simple example, there's that carpet of ferns, which is so beautiful under the trees. They need that condition to grow. They need that shade under the canopy. Out here in the, in the sunny yard, in the front yard, there's, there's different plants that will grow. The ferns won't grow there. There's other plants that enjoy those conditions. So both in the natural world around us and in the natural world within us, there's certain conditions that determine what will grow and what will wither. In the external environment, uh, key factors are things like sunlight, precipitation. In our internal environment, it turns out to be awareness. It turns out to be mindfulness that to a large extent is the key factor in determining what will grow and what will wither. So the beautiful states of mind, the factors of awakening, they need a certain amount of the light of mindfulness to grow. And they go into decline when we fall into inattention. Whereas the hindrances, the, the difficult states, uh, they flourish in the shade. <laughs> you know, they love it when we're inattentive. They really thrive in that condition. When we bring the light of mindfulness to them, they start to, they start to shrink, they start to wither. Fortunately, the inner climate of our minds can be altered, so we can influence conditions so that they're more conducive to the kind of mental states that we'd like to be living with, that we'd like to be living in. Not usually suddenly in a dramatic way, but just little by little, slowly over time. The first in the list of the factors of enlightenment is sati, that all-important factor of mindfulness. Uh, but ironically, for as much as we talk about mindfulness, awareness here, as much as we may think about it, try to arouse it and apply it, it's actually very easy to overlook in and of itself. Just because it's so simple and so commonplace and so ordinary, just the simple remembering that we're aware, just the simple reminding ourselves to, to, to remember that we're aware just to simply remember to notice what's happening right now. We tend to think or we tend to feel that th that can't be all there is to it. There's got to be more to it. For as important as, as all these people are saying it is, or we may have seen in our own experience, there's got to be more to it. Um, we have the, the experience very often in the groups of uh, you guys come in with kind of like a long face and kind of a you know, sad voice, you know, a voice of doom and gloom. 
and uh, then proceed to ex- to tell us about really good practice, <laughs> you know, which you just completely overlooked um, because because we, we haven't noticed because it is so easy to overlook. Um, so you know, you may come in and say, "Well, I noticed this and that and the other, and am I doing it right?" <laughs> which in the way that you've said that, you've already answered the question with the I noticed. You know, that's really all there is to it. You notice something? That's good. You're doing it. That's really all there is to it. Of course, there are different qualities of mindfulness, different quantities of mindfulness. So it does become more continuous. It does become more frequent. Um, and it may have different qualities depending on other factors that come with it. It may feel more subtle, it may feel more penetrating, it may feel more superficial depending on other friends that it's brought along with it. But mindfulness itself is just extremely simple, extremely natural. This is a short teaching that I love from Tongpulu Sayadaw called What Makes a Meditation. When you know that you are feeling greed, you are no longer in ignorance but possess knowledge. If you know that you are angry and feel hatred, you are no longer in ignorance, but possess knowledge. When you know that you're confused, that knowing becomes knowledge, and it is a meditation. Even if you become aware of the feeling, I don't want to meditate, that means that you have the understanding that you don't want to meditate. (laughs) Since you know that you do not want to meditate, that knowing becomes the meditation, the mindfulness and awareness that you know what you don't want to do so simple. (laughs) The rest of the enlightenment factors, the other six after mindfulness, are divided usually into two groups. So on the one hand, there's three uh, energizing, uplifting qualities. Those are investigation, energy, and joy. And on the other hand, there's three calming or tranquilizing factors. Those are calm, concentration, and equanimity. So there's kind of a larger message to this teaching um, that awakening or enlightenment comes out of a a balance, balance between alertness and tranquility, which is actually the the town motto for Barry, uh, alert and tranquil, as some of you may know, which uh, played a significant role in deciding on this place as as an auspicious location for a meditation center when the uh, founders saw that town motto. So we don't actually want to just be blissed out. We don't just want the energizing side of the equation. Well, we might want it. <laughs> but in terms of awakening, that's not going to do it. That's not going to get us to a place where we really can see deeply. That kind of blissed outness, as much as we may uh, you know, want it, wish for it, enjoy it if it comes, it, there's a kind of a disconnect in that. It's like we're so just you know, enjoying, leaning back into the pleasure that we're not really fully connecting. And same thing on the other side, too. We don't want to just be totally chilled out. Some of us can have that idea that the direction of practice is just to become more and more and more tranquil until we're like so calm, so chilled out, that we're just like nothing even really registers. You know, that's also a kind of disconnect. We get too tranquil, then we, we stop really taking in what's happening. So we're really aiming at a, at a balance between the two, tranquil but alert right in the the middle path between those extremes. So I often think of the factors of enlightenment in the image of a a seesaw, a teeter-totter, with with mindfulness at the fulcrum. That's a balancing point. And that can never be too strong. We can never have too much mindfulness. That one can never be out of balance. But then on, on each side of the seesaw, we want to balance out the energizing factors and the tranquilizing factors so that we can find a place of balance. It's when we're at that place of balance that the mind really becomes receptive to wisdom, can really open with wisdom to deeper truths. The first of the energizing factors is investigation. And as we probably said in here, this isn't an intellectual investigation. So it's not analysis. That's not what this factor points to. It's dhamma vichaya, investigation of truth, investigation of how things actually are which is this ability to to draw near to experience, to really sink into it more fully so that we can take in more of the flavor, take in more of the texture, the quality of the moment. 
my, my children have been great teachers. Children are great teachers around this quality of investigation because they just naturally have it. They have, their minds haven't yet gotten uh, so complicated with all the analysis and the intellectualization. So there's a beautiful uh, botanical garden near where we live, large uh, area of land that's been landscaped and has lots of interesting plants and beautiful gardens laid out. And um, I'll take the kids there, you know, and I'll be saying, oh, look, there's a rose, you know, X, Y, Z kind of rose. Oh, and there's the lilies, you know, I'll be point, trying to point out all the botanical features <laughs> that the gardens have. And, you know, they don't care. They're just like running up and sticking their faces into the roses, you know, and, and feeling the softness of the petals and really taking in the aroma and feeling the full delight of that. And maybe getting pricked by the thorns, too. But, they, you know, they have that quality of just really plunging into experience, really taking it in. So having a little bit of that, that childlike openness to experience that really can draw near as part of the qual- this quality of investigation. It's easy to, to assume that we know an experience, to think, well, oh yeah, I know sadness, or I know anger, or I know longing, or I know loneliness. But so often by the time we get here, we know those just through that filter of intellectual analysis. We know the ideas of those things. We, in a way, we have to relearn you know, later in life from a place of greater wisdom what actually are those experiences by you know, sticking our faces right into them and smelling them. The next energizing factor, the last of them, is energy itself. Or not the last of them, the second one is, is energy. Uh, sometimes translated as effort. But there's lots of different ways to translate this quality of virya. We could translate it as courage or steadfastness or perseverance. It's the ability to really stand firm in the face of whatever is arising in our experience, which the classic example of this comes from the life story of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment when he was attacked by the armies of Mara all of the defilements in his own mind, all of the forces within his own mind that were interfering with his efforts to gain freedom. So he, so, uh, he had to encounter fear and lust and self-doubt and everything, all of the same things that we experience here. In Buddhist uh, art, we see images of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree with, with like scores of ugly little demons around him, just like throwing spears and arrows and you know, rocks and everything at him, trying to uh, distract him, trying to d- deter him from his uh, aspiration. But he didn't give up. He just stood his ground. He didn't fight. He didn't struggle with those forces within the mind. We don't see him you know, pulling out his sword and fighting back with those demons. We see him just sitting just standing his ground in the midst of everything that came at him. The image that's captured in the, the statue that we have here in the hall, you know, touching the earth, affirming his commitment, affirming his determination to just stand his ground in the midst of everything. So Viri is this energy that helps us to stay present with whatever arises, with whatever's coming up. It takes a lot of courage to just be able to stay still It takes more energy, really, more steadfastness to be able to just stand our ground as opposed to shrinking away or getting into a struggle. What we come to realize over time is that it really doesn't take much effort or much energy to meet any particular moment. The trick is to do it moment after moment after moment after moment. That's where the effort comes in. You know, we don't have to pounce on any given moment. We just touch it very lightly, the way that a butterfly might land on a flower. Just the lightest little touch. Okay, there's what's happening in the present moment. But then to do it again, and to do it again, and to do it again, and to do it again. The last of the energizing factors is joy. And joy is a very important part of the path. This process really doesn't work without joy. We have to remember this one. You know, we can get so serious with the effort and the strain of being in the midst of the defilement so much of the time. But actually, at some point, joy is a very natural uh, result. It's a very natural symptom of Vipassana practice at a certain point. And it's also really an essential element. Um, The kind of joy that we mean here is spiritual joy. 
which is different from the sensual joy that we're used to experiencing. So it's not the kind of joy that comes from a pleasant sense experience. It's not the kind of joy that comes from the beautiful sunset or the nice cup of tea or laying down in our beds at the end of the day. It's not that kind of joy. It's a kind of delight, an inner delight, that comes from just the quality of the mind itself, from the way that we're relating to experience. It's the joy that comes from being really intimate with experience, even if it's a difficult experience, even if it's a boring experience, even if it's an experience that we don't like. There's this kind of joy that comes from being fully immersed in the flow, the flow of life, the immediacy of it. This might manifest as a keen interest in what we're observing. Those times when we really start to feel, oh, this is so interesting. Uh, Joy can manifest that way. It can manifest as a sense of of lightness and comfort in the body. Um, We may even start to get some kind of bells and whistles of the practice, a sense of goosebumps, uh, seeing a bright light or visions before us, really pleasant feelings in the body at times. These are all different ways that we experience spiritual joy. And it's a joy that we don't need to fear. And some of you are starting to experience this in your practice, starting to pick up on it. And when we first encounter it, there can be a little bit of nervousness, like, uh-oh, this feels good. <laughs> you know, like, is, this, is this okay? You know, <laughs> There must be attachment. What the, what's going on? You know? But there's, there's, this is actually a kind of enjoyment, a kind of delight in the practice that is entirely wholesome. There's there's really no need to fear this kind of joy that comes from that contact with the present moment. It's far better, actually, than the kind of joy that we get from just ordinary sense pleasures. It's more deeply satisfying. And once we get a taste of that kind of spiritual joy, it tends to to start to, to redefine how we relate to sensual pleasure. It changes our frame of reference for that. We start to not uh, latch on to sense pleasures with quite so much of a death grip because we've experienced this other kind of happiness that's not related to that. It can start to really transform our view of the world. So these are the three uh, energizing factors, investigation and energy and joy. Those are the ones on the energizing side. Then we have the ones on the tranquilizing side, calm, concentration, and equanimity. So calm is something that a lot of us come on retreat looking for or hoping for. That ability to really rest in the present moment, the feeling of non-agitation, not leaning into anything or away from anything, but just being able to relax, relaxation, being able to rest in what's happening, which helps our whole system. We can feel this very much in the body, helps the whole system to really settle when there's tranquility in the mind. Uh, when feelings of tranquility become very strong, we might have that moment where we feel like, oh, why was this such a problem before? <laughs> you know, why was I struggling so much? This is, this is fine. I can just sit here. This is okay. We start to get that feeling of just settledness and, and being relaxed. Everything seems to kind of quiet down, slow down as we become more tranquil. And that may come for just brief moments, and just, it may just be short periods here and there where we, when we feel that kind of settledness. Or it can become, over time, more stable, a more steady aspect of our experience. Concentration is the ability of the mind to focus, to settle on what we're noticing. So giving an experience our full attention. And that is not necessarily staying with just one experience. So we can have this idea that concentration is about just following the breath, just staying on the breath, that it has to be that that focused attention on one experience to be concentration. But concentration can actually come in a much more dynamic way. So it may be focusing not just on one experience, but on a series of experience. So we could think of it as that what we're concentrating on is the present moment. The experience of the present moment may change. One thing, now another, now another. It can change quite a lot. But the mind is still concentrating on that present moment, whatever it holds. When concentration gets stronger, it tends to make us feel like we're meditating. (laughs) Concentration is the factor that we usually are kind of looking for to give us that, that positive reinforcement that we're actually doing the practice. Because when we get concentrated, we get that feeling of kind of switching gears, 
you know, the, the quality of the consciousness seems to change. Um, we might start to, it might start to seem like it's just very easy to be aware. It might start to seem like time is passing quickly. Um, when concentration really does start to become strong and continuous, then it's not so subtle. It does tend to be really clear that we've, we've entered an altered state of consciousness. The mind has shifted into another zone. And that can be very satisfying. It can be very pleasant. But concentration also comes in more subtle ways. So every moment that we're mindful, there's some amount of concentration there. Just because of that, we need a certain amount of concentration to connect with the present moment, to focus on that, and to block out all of the distractions that are in the mind. And oftentimes we don't realize how concentrated we become until we get to the end of the retreat. <laughs> Those of you that have been on retreat before know this. Like, we feel like... You know, we're just kind of slogging on through the retreat and the concentration has just never really picked up momentum. And then the silence breaks and then we realize, oh, I'm really in there. So you, you may not feel it until you get to the end, but it's happening. It really is happening. The last in, in the list of tranquilizing factors is equanimity. And equanimity plays a particularly central role in the practice, not just in this list, but in many lists. It's the ability of the mind to remain balanced, to remain stable in the face of whatever's arising. So not getting excited about experiences that are really pleasant, not getting excited about experiences that are really unpleasant, and not disconnecting with experiences that are just kind of neutral and spacing out. The quality of equanimity is what allows us to meet every moment with even attention, steady attention. The quality of equanimity is what enables us to give equal appreciation, equal respect to every moment. And again, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Equanimity was praised highly by the Buddha as one of the highest kinds of happiness because it brings deep peace. It brings this unshakable sense of calm and presence with whatever's happening in our experience. We often notice this on retreat or sometimes again in, in the, after, um, the after effects of a retreat when we see ourselves not having a habitual response to some particular stimulus. So we may notice this here with something that usually attracts us or repulses us and one day we encounter it and it just doesn't seem like quite as big a deal. You know, maybe it's the lunch line <laughs> or whatever it is for us. When maybe one day we go in there and instead of it being a big drama, it's just kind of like, okay, you know, here we are in line, getting our food. That's the quality of equanimity, that things don't seem like such a big deal. Or a thought may come up in, a, in the mind, maybe some memory or some fantasy or whatever it is, whatever our obsessive thought train is that comes up and drives us crazy. And one day it comes up and there's not that strong reactivity around it. Maybe there's still some reactivity around it, but we notice it's not, it's not quite as strong. There's a little more balance around it, a little more space. This is the factor of equanimity. One time um, I went to practice in Burma uh, during the rainy season and the, the hall that I was sitting in, was it was kind of like this. It had this, all these rows of windows around the edges and each window had a little ledge over it you know, to keep the rain out. And the windows were open all the time, obviously, because there's no central air conditioning like we have here. And I guess it was, it was nesting season for a particular species of, um, I think it was a kind of finch that lives around there. And on, on every little ledge over every window, there would be like finch nests. And the finches were really like loud and just excited because it was you know, mating season or whatever. So the, outside of every window, there's this like fighting, angry set of birds, you know, trying to defend their, their territory. And I remember arriving and in the first week just being like, oh my gosh, this is going to drive me insane. <laughs> the, the, that noise was just so distracting. And so it seemed so unpleasant, you know, at the time when I was just arrived and trying to concentrate, trying to settle, and if just only those birds would go away, then I could do my practice. Um, but time passed, and I, and I did settle in more to my practice. The enlightenment factors began to get stronger. And a little while later, another American yogi came to stay at the center to practice. And I was asked to give her just a little bit of orientation to help her to, you know, figure out how things worked there. 
And so we talked, and then at some point during the conversations, he said, can you believe those birds? <laughs> What's the deal with the birds? And I actually had to stop and think for a second, like, what is she talking about? <laughs> Which was kind of like that flag that went up in the mind, oh, I've actually become more equanimous. You know, it's not that I don't hear it anymore. It wasn't that I'd stopped hearing it. You couldn't stop hearing it. It's like the machinery outside here. But the mind just wasn't, didn't have that reactivity around it. It had settled down a little bit. Sometimes we see this, too, um, with our relationship with the body. So I started uh, meditating about 20 years ago at a time when I was much younger, much healthier, uh, much thinner, much more limber. And um, the body tormented me. You know, we really get to see this here, that no matter how young, how healthy, how limber you are, how great of a yoga practice you have, this does not guarantee freedom from suffering in the body. Um, because so much of it is in the relationship of the mind. So here, you know, 20 years on down the road, uh, I'm n- my body is not any healthier, younger, more limber, you know, in any objective sense. And yet it's clear that it doesn't bother me as much. You know, there's no physical reason for that. There's no physical explanation for that. It's in the relationship of the mind. There's greater equanimity. So these are the three tranquilizing qualities, calm and concentration and equanimity. I wanted to say a little bit now about uh, working with the enlightenment factors, about dealing with them in practice, because these are also things that come up in our practice. And the Buddha gave very specific guidance to pay attention to both the hindrances on the one hand and to the enlightenment factors on the other hand. And his instructions in both cases are very, very similar, almost identical, which boil down to just simply learning to recognize them and observe them, observe their behavior, which is what you hear us say in instructions here over and over and over again. (laughs) Pay attention. How do they arise? How do they pass? This is how it's recorded in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness, which is the kind of the guidebook for the style of practice that we do here. I actually had an interesting conversation recently with a Pali scholar, somebody who really studies the ancient texts, and uh, he was telling me that there's a school of thought that just these two lists were originally the only ones in the uh, fourth foundation of mindfulness. That's a little bit off topic, but (laughs) these are are the really the central ones, to pay attention to the the difficult states of mind and to pay attention to the beautiful states of mind and to, to become clearer and clearer about those, about how they feel, about how they operate. So this is the actual instruction from the sutta. The Buddha said, when an enlightenment factor is present, one knows this enlightenment factor is present. When an enlightenment factor is absent, one knows this enlightenment factor is absent. And one knows how the enlightenment factor arises and how it comes to be developed and how it's perfected. Simple, right? (laughs) When is it present? When is it absent? How does it arise? How does it strengthen? How does it disappear? So just as with the hindrances, this instruction is not about trying to either get or get rid of any particular mental state, but just to learn as much as we possibly can about them, to become familiar with them, to become more intimate with them. And one thing that can be helpful to remember as we start to to look into these, into these beautiful states of mind, is that in general, they're more subtle. They're more subdued than the defilements. Um, that's not always the case. We, we definitely get to see that the defilements, as things calm down, as these enlightenment factors get stronger, the defilements are still there. <laughs> they can get more and more subtle too. And likewise with the enlightenment factors, when they start to become really strong, really continuous, when there start to be a lot of them present, then they can too become quite powerful and quite intense. But in general, in general we could say that the enlightenment factors are more subtle than the defilements and how we experience them. Especially um, kind of early on in our practice, which uh, could be the first decade or two of our practice, before we start to get really familiar with them, it can be very easy to overlook them. You know, that's why you guys come in all downcast to, to to the groups, because you're just simply not recognizing the good things that are happening in your practice. 
So we spend a lot of time early in our practice learning to recognize the defilements and, and work with the defilements, find some way to be with those. Because they're so strong and so obvious, they're really the squeaky wheel in our experience that is demanding our attention. But it's also important to remember to keep an eye out for the factors of enlightenment um, because they often slip below the radar. If we're used to a lot of drama in our practice, when the drama starts to subside a little bit, um, it can feel like there's a void. It can feel like there's nothing happening. So kind of paradoxically, when the enlightenment factors are getting stronger, the defilements are getting weaker, we can have this experience of, oh, nothing's happening. (laughs) Nothing's happening anymore. My my practice is stalled. Nothing's going on anymore. I have a dear Dharma friend. um, I remember years ago her coming back from a retreat and telling me that she she felt like she'd been gypped because she hadn't had a good cry. (laughs) She didn't have a good cry during her retreat. She felt like nothing had really happened. Um, but really, we both came to realize over time, it's just, it's just that the hindrances are getting weaker and the enlightenment factors are getting stronger. We don't always have to cry. It's okay if we cry, but we don't always have to cry. So the first step in learning about the enlightenment factors in our own experience is just simply being able to detect them, <laughs> just simply being able to pick up on them. And I wanted to give a little bit of a parallel teaching tonight to Steve's uh, uh, six R's guideline for for the hindrances, for working with the torments. Because the instructions are really basically the same. You don't actually need a second sheet for working with the enlightenment factors. You can just take this one and just change a few words in it. It's really the same instructions. So working with the enlightenment factors, the first step is also recognize recognize that they're coming up um, by coming out of the enchantment of the suffering narrative. So this is an interesting point for the enlightenment factors, is that we can be so caught up in our story about how badly things are going and what bad yogis we are and how much of a failure this retreat is or whatever the story is, um, that we don't notice all of the good that's happening. We actually have to be willing to let go of all of those assumptions, all the stories we're telling us about what's going on in the retreat, about what's going on in our own minds, to be open, to be open to noticing what's actually happening that's good. So the affect of uh, the mind, how we experience the mind when the enlightenment factors are present, it can vary depending on the particular mix of the enlightenment factors that are present, depending on how strong they are, how continuous they are. So it might feel pleasant, or it may just feel more neutral. But whatever the case is, it's usually signaled by a lessening of wandering mind when the enlightenment factors are getting stronger. And again, that may just be for a short period, or it may be for a more prolonged period. So there starts to be a sense that somehow it's just more okay to be here. We're more okay with just resting in the present moment. That's kind of like the ding, 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 ding. Enlightenment factors are getting stronger if the mind becomes more willing to be in the present moment. So we can ask ourselves, you know, we, can, we could just do a little investigation. Do I know I'm here? <laughs> you know, if we're in the present moment, we know we're here. In some way, shape, or form, sati is present to some degree. We can ask ourselves, am I, am I interested? Am I curious about the experience? If, if there's some sense of interest there, then that quality of, of Dhamma Vichaya, Dhamma investigation is there to some extent. So we can explore a little bit. You know, if we're pre- even present to ask these questions, <laughs> then there's enlightenment factors present. So the second R is relax. Relax self-judgment by accepting this is the way things have come to be for me for now. So when we do find ourselves in a clearly more present, somewhat less tormented state, uh, the habitual reaction of the mind can then be to immediately begin to integrate that experience into our story about ourselves, (laughs) right? (laughs) So thoughts may come of, oh, I'm doing good now. Oh, maybe I'm actually a good, you know, an okay yogi after all. Um, depending on how we're wired, we may get, you know, much stronger uh, opinions, ideas about what's happening. Ah, I bet nobody else here is having an experience like this. This is really special. 
Um, or if we're more tentative, you know, I wonder if this will happen again, or when will it happen again, or what can I do to make it happen again, or you know, maybe this is what enlightenment is like, you know. So there's <laughs> this irony that we start to get a little bit of relief from the hindrances when the enlightenment factors get strongly, but then they come back in, you know, they come back in and try to reassert themselves around that very experience. So we need to be willing, again, to let go of that. Um, just because the experience starts to be nicer, starts to be easier, doesn't mean that we should entertain those stories about it any more than the stories about the suffering. Uh, the next R, restrain. So not acting out the mental state or, indul- or indulging in the story of it. So the ways that, how do we act out the enlightenment factors? How do we indulge in the stories around the enlightenment factors? Um, there can be a tendency to interpret that lessening of suffering that comes with the enlightenment factors as a signal that we can now take a break. We can now let up a little bit. So the thoughts may come in, oh, I don't really need to do the next sitting, you know, I'm really in the flow of things now, I'll just go have a cup of tea, uh, you know, and just enjoy the state for a while. Or we may, we may have the feeling, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm on a roll now with my practice. I think I'll just go take a nap, you know, because it seems to kind of be rolling along nicely now. So I can, I can let up off the, the gas a little bit. So we can kind of give ourselves over to, um, you know, the, the thoughts, the, the hindrance thoughts that come up around the increase in the enlightenment factors. Or just give ourselves over to, to whatever fantasies or pondering may come up. You know, maybe it's going to be like this forever now, or how can I get it to be like this forever? We can give ourselves over to that kind of thinking, all of which um, involves taking a step back from practice. So it's really important to keep an eye out for when the enlightenment factors get stronger that we don't then fall into just naturally backing off from practice because it feels better. The fourth R, reframe our understanding as this is an opportunity to develop awareness. So this is really important when the enlightenment factors start to get stronger, when we start to have more ease, when we start to have more calm, when we start to have more energy, any of the enlightenment factors. Really important to to keep that uh, supportive frame of reference around them, that this is also an opportunity to develop awareness. So there's times when it does get easier, uh, it's not a reward for good behavior. You know, it's, it's not a trophy for all the time that we've spent slogging through the difficulties. And as it quickly becomes clear, it's not a permanent transformation. It's a little bit of temporary relief. So the, the skillful attitude around the enlightenment factors is to see them as just more material for awareness practice. They're just more different material, different content for us to be aware of. And it's actually that willingness to, to recommit to recommit and place our faith in just being aware of that experience that will continue to strengthen it, continue to stabilize it. So it's just as important to bring awareness to beautiful and easy and delightful experiences as to painful, difficult ones. If, and if we try, try that on for size at those times when it's easier, we might notice that there's a certain imbalance in how we're relating to experience. There might be a sense that, oh, we we don't really need to pay attention at the times when it gets easier because there's no problem, right? Things get a little easier, the body's more comfortable, we're not tormented by obsessive thoughts. Everything's okay, there's no problem, so I don't really need to be mindful. And that can be more or less uh, of an explicit assumption that might be there in the mind. Uh, The fifth R, receive the nature of the enlightenment factors while observing them with relaxed interest. So again, this is just bringing all of the same investigative tools that we would bring to a hindrance or to a difficult situation to a nice situation, to an easy situation. So all of those same skillful means that we've learned for dealing with the hindrances, we can also bring into play in relation to the enlightenment factors. Name the mental state or the enlightenment factor. Feel into it. Notice its qualities. Name them if it helps to get more connected. Notice the attitude of mind around it. So all those same ways of paying attention to to difficult states are just the same ways to pay attention to easy states, to pleasant states. The practice doesn't change. And then the, the sixth R, realize. Realize the universal characteristics of the enlightenment factors as well. 
And it's especially helpful to notice how they fade, how they disappear, and also how they arise or how they strengthen if we can notice those parts of it. At first, we tend not to notice these states until they become fairly strong and fairly obvious, and then we might notice, oh, things have gotten easier. Um, But as we settle more into practice, there might also be times when we can see the mind kind of um, crossing the threshold. It's this very uh, thin threshold between the unwholesome side and the wholesome side, the unwholesome side of the defilements and the wholesome side of the enlightenment factors. So we might at some point start to actually see we've been caught in some kind of thinking, caught in some obsession, caught in some pain in the body, and then the, the, the climate in the mind starts to shift. And we're not so pulled by those wandering thoughts. We start to just kind of drop into the present moment. There's not so much of a sense of struggle. And and we've crossed over the line. We might be be able to pick up on that at a certain point. So in time, we come to see that these beautiful qualities of mind, these uh, nice experiences are also impermanent. They come and go due to causes and conditions. And for that very reason, they can't be a reliable refuge in and of themselves. You know, they're, they're great insofar as they last, but they don't last, so they're flawed. And they're impersonal. You know, they, these nice qualities, these nice states don't really define us as people, as beings, any more than the unpleasant ones, the ugly ones. We all of us have the seed for these qualities within us, just as we have all the seeds for the, the negative qualities as well. These are all natural human tendencies. So it's not a sign of our personal greatness or success uh, if we have these kinds of experiences arise any more than the arising of the defilements is a sign of our personal unworthiness or failure as human beings. And this can actually be harder to get with the enlightenment factors than with the hindrances. Most of us are pretty... um, ready and willing to find some way to not identify with hindrances. <laughs> Those are, that's not what we want to be. That's not what we want to define us. But there can be, you know, under the surface, some desire to, to define ourselves in terms of the more beautiful qualities of the mind. It might be a little harder to let go of those. But in time, we come to see that they have the same nature as every other experience. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. They're impermanent, they're unsatisfying, they're impersonal. So the instructions that we're giving you here are all pointing towards cultivating these factors, these enlightenment factors. So every time we encourage you to be aware, we're encouraging you to cultivate the factor of mindfulness. Every time we talk about getting curious with an experience, we're encouraging you to investigate. Uh, when, we try, when we talk about the great potential of the practice and try to inspire you in your practice, uh, we're trying to, to help some joy to arise in your hearts. Well, we tell you to just to relax, that it's all going to be okay. You know, we're trying to incline you towards calm, tranquility. When we tell you uh, over and over again that you don't need to get excited about some particular experience, <laughs> we're, we're trying to help you incline towards equanimity. So if we can remember this list of um, the factors of enlightenment, it's really very useful. This is one of the lists that it's, it's actually very um, practical. It's very helpful to, to memorize this one, or at least remember the basic principles of it if we can, because then we can give ourselves those instructions. <laughs> we can go, to, go through the list and give ourselves a little pep talk. Okay, mindfulness, curiosity, uh, you know, tranquility, equanimity, whatever it might be that feels like is out of balance at any point in our practice. So there's a method to the madness here. (laughs) There's a reason why we do it the way we do it here. It's not that when we tell you to relax, we think that you're going to be able to just flip a switch in your mind and relax. You know, we all know it doesn't work that way. But all these instructions are in the service of what the Buddha called inclining the mind, which is something that he encouraged with all wholesome mental states, to incline the mind towards them, to inspire ourselves towards... uh, cultivating them, to keep in mind a a conceptual framework. So to have ideas, to have philosophies that actually support the cultivation of these qualities, that value them, hold them as core values, so that there's something that we have kind of front and center in front of us, that this is the direction that we want to be moving. This is the direction that we can move. And this also helps us to consciously cultivate a taste 
for the experience that comes when the enlightenment factors get stronger, an appreciation for that quality of experience. One way of thinking about this practice, yet another way, is as a a process of developing a taste for freedom, developing an actual appreciation for it, and weakening our taste for drama, our taste for the experience that comes with the defilements. And becoming aware of both the defilements and the enlightenment factors is the first step in that process. So again, the more we pay attention to the defilements, the more we come to realize just how much suffering they're causing us, that they're really not contributing to the cause of our happiness in this life. And the more we pay attention to the enlightenment factors, the more we come to realize how much peace and happiness is available through cultivating those qualities. It's the natural tendency of the mind to move towards what it believes will bring happiness and to move away from what it believes will bring pain. That's the natural tendency of the mind what we have faith in, that it will bring us happiness, we just naturally gravitate towards. What we have faith, confidence in that it will bring us suffering, we naturally avoid that. This is why the mind gravitates towards the defilements when we first come to practice. Because we mistakenly think that pursuing those, the cultivating those, is going to contribute to our happiness. It's this kind of misplaced faith, inaccurate faith, deluded faith that through engaging with that obsessive thought or pursuing that planning or whatever it is, that that's going to contribute to our happiness. It's not actually that we're masochists. (laughs) We've been conditioned to have faith, to place our our faith in certain quarters. So the more clearly we see the defilements, the more we come to understand their true nature. And the more disillusioned we become with them, and the more our minds will naturally tend to let go of them, We don't have to forcibly eradicate or destroy them. Wisdom will automatically avoid them when we we really start to get, really start to understand and believe and have faith that it's not productive to go down those roads. It's like um, once we learn what poison ivy looks like, I put a lot of effort these days into trying to impress upon my children, this is what poison ivy looks like, (laughs) which they're pretty good at now, actually. Um, Once we know what poison ivy looks like, we just naturally avoid it. You know, when we encounter it on a trail or something, we don't have to have an internal debate with ourselves. Well, hmm, should I plunge into the poison ivy or should I avoid it or maybe just pick a little bit? You know, we we don't have that debate because it's clear. We know what the consequences are of picking the poison ivy, going into the poison ivy. And this is the same, the same exact dynamic that operates in relation to what we find in the mind. The more we understand what's in there, the poison ivy of the mind, we just don't go there. Of course, if we're not paying attention, then we can still stumble into the poison ivy, which happens a lot. (laughs) And conversely, the more that we recognize the factors of enlightenment from seeing them in our own minds and just seeing how nice it is, when that's the dominant experience, that's the dominant climate in the mind, then the more we come to appreciate them and to develop a taste for them. And it's an irony that uh, freedom is actually a bit of an acquired taste for most of us. Um, we, come take a, we come and we take a practice, we go to the trouble to come on a retreat, um, and we may have, there may be a bit of an abstract desire for peace. Like there's an intellectual understanding that greater freedom, greater calm, greater peace would be good for us. But it can actually take some time for the heart, the kind of the, you might say the subconscious, to really fully get on board with this agenda, with this aspiration because we've been so conditioned in in our society, really trained from childhood, to have a taste for excitement and for intensity and stimulation. The message all around us is that that's the way to find happiness, through a a constant stream of pleasant stimulation, (laughs) that that's the recipe for happiness. So the more subtle happiness of peace and freedom is not actually where most of us are used to looking for happiness or how we're even used to thinking about what happiness is. But as we sit and we walk and we're quiet and we pay attention, it starts to dawn on us little by little that this kind of happiness that comes with the factors of enlightenment is actually far superior to that kind of frantic excitement, the highs and the lows of always chasing after pleasure, running away from pain. 
which is what's captured in this closing verse that we've been reciting here, that to live in harmony with the way that things really are brings peace, which is the greatest happiness. There's a famous verse from the Dhammapada that says, if by giving up small pleasures, great happiness is to be found, the wise should give up small pleasures, seeing the prospect of great happiness. So over time we learn to to give up the small pleasures in the service of great happiness, more and more. Let's sit for a minute. So time for awareness and movement and then the last sitting at nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.